This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. Welcome to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hansen, and each week I'm joined by insightful guests to talk about their written work and how the gospel applies to all of life. Together, we keep looking until we see God working. Wherever you're listening, welcome. I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. There is almost nothing so beautiful as forgiveness. Botham Jean was killed in 2018 in his apartment by an off-duty police officer who thought he was an intruder. The courtroom scene where she received forgiveness from Jean's brother brought tears uh, to many eyes, including my own. Where many saw beauty, others seethed with anger. Some saw another example of African Americans forgiving their oppressors when they should have been demanding change. Similar drama played out after the infamous Charleston shootings by a white supremacist in 2015. So the question is, must we choose between forgiveness and justice? And does forgiveness merely empower abusers? Enter Tim Keller in his latest book, Forgive, Why Should I and How Can I? The best-selling author, co-founder of the Gospel Coalition, doesn't neglect the cost of forgiveness. He writes this, forgiveness is always a form of voluntary suffering that brings about a greater good, end quote. Now, sometimes that greater good accrues to the one who forgives. It may feel like an optional exercise, but only if we don't consider the alternative. Keller writes this, if you don't deal with your wrath through forgiveness, wrath can make you a wraith, turning slowly but surely into a restless spirit, into someone who's controlled by the past someone who's haunted, end quote. That's a good one, Tim. Tim Keller joins me now on Gospel Bound to discuss what happens when a society doesn't forgive, whether it's ever okay not to forgive, the two stages of forgiveness, and more. Thanks, Tim. Welcome back to Gospel Bound. Happy to talk to you about this. (laughs) All right, Tim, you say that when a society doesn't forgive, the results are horrifying. Do you see horrifying results in our society today? Well, yes. I mean, there's no doubt that we're more polarized. And I do think a big part of that is a uh, uh, an unwritten, unstated um, assumption that if you are really for justice, if you're really for the right, you um, you really don't forgive people, but you just you just stay outraged. <clears throat> um, you stay um, angry. Uh, in fact, a lack of anger is uh, is um, is really seen as letting the other person off the hook. It's really being less than committed to justice. It's almost like to be angry and to be for justice are almost the same thing. And if you're not angry, then you're really not committed to justice. And so um, that's overtly stated on the right, on the left. I would say, though, it's almost been adopted by the right, even though I don't think they would like to agree I don't think they'd agree that they've been, in a sense, captivated by a leftist ideology. But there's no doubt that uh, 
people on the right, as you know, for example, right now, and let's not go there. This is not really the subject of the book. Uh, are afraid of being trying to be winsome. They trying to be kind and nice, and they say that just that just plays into the hands of the people who are trying to take over the country and trying to destroy us. And so that's not very far from the left saying you're supposed to stay angry. You're not supposed to be kind and understanding. You have to stay angry or you're not for justice. So justice and forgiveness are seen as opposites now. Hmm. Now, is there a is there a non-Christian basis for forgiveness? Pragmatic. Okay. Yeah. So just to be example, able to assuage your own anger, essentially. Yeah. The two the two secular approaches to forgiveness. One I call therapy. It's in the book, by the way. Right. Let's talk about the book. Uh, <laughs> one is called therapeutic, and one I call merited transactional. The therapeutic one is the one that you most heard about, and what most secular books uh, that call to teach you how to forgive let your anger go, let go of it. It's all for you. It's all like, it's not healthy for you to stay angry and you need to let go and you need to get by, get, get past it. And it's, there's no real concern for the perpetrator and there's no real concern for society. You know, how, you know, it's all a matter of how can, how can you have peaceful emotions and that's pragmatism. That's not like it's right or it's wrong. It's not like it's uh, valid or invalid. It's like uh, forgiveness is something that you need to you need in order to have peace of mind. Uh, the merited forgiveness is where it's trans or transactional is where you demand I'll forgive you if you change, and only if you change, and only if you change enough and grovel enough. To show that you have really um, been, uh, in some ways, that you have suffered as much as you made me suffer. So merited forgiveness is where, uh, you know, if you come and you have hat in hand and you do this and this and this and this, then I'll forgive you. And again, that's very um, pragmatic. Um, and it is a way of, of basically demanding that you get uh, a certain amount of um both emotional and, and behavioral change on, in the, on the part of the other person. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I can just see why uh, some people would say, if the forgiveness is, I'll forgive you if I see you suffered too, and you've groveled and you've hate yourself and you beat yourself up and you've done all this and you've made a restitution, then in a sense, you're, you're paying the person back. It was, was, was ironic about merited forgiveness and no, Martha Nussbaum um, who's a secular philosopher, very prominent, University of Chicago, I think, has written a couple of books uh, against forgiveness because her, the, the forgiveness she sees in the culture is, she says, it's not really forgiveness. What you're really saying, I'll forgive you if you do this and this and grovel enough. And it's really basically a way of paying a person back under the heading of forgiveness so that you don't look like you're being vengeful, but you actually are. Well, so the next, next question then from your book, forgive why should i and how can i why do you describe forgiveness as a test of our belief and understanding of the gospel well the the forgiveness that the bible talks about is a uh, a forgiveness that i do think has two parts to it uh, now uh, my departed dear departed friend david pallison wrote a book called good and angry and he does a really good job in there to explain that there's two aspects to forgiveness that the two two different verses 
you when you read them at first they seem to be contradictory but when you bring them together they give you a of an approach to forgiveness that's based on the cross it's not the merited transactional forgiveness we talked about where you're basically paying the person back but they grovel enough uh before you forgive them and it's not the therapeutic where you just do it for your own sake mark eleven twenty five says that jesus says if you're standing and you really and you're praying and you realize you have anything against anybody forgive them so it doesn't say go to them or anything he just says forgive them on the spot and yet luke 17 uh jesus says if a person comes and repents you forgive them and if they repent seven times you forgive them seven times and that seems to be saying that you don't forgive unless they repent now, what David Pallison says is that unless you bring the two together, you fall into one mistake or another. The one mistake is you say you forgive that person, but then you don't have to go to them and talk to them at all. It's all something you do in your heart. On the other hand, you, um, you very often people say you don't have to forgive somebody unless they come to you. And what, what David says is you internally forgive them first. So that you are saying, I'm going to go to them, but I'm not going to be trying to pay them back. I'm not going to be trying to make them grovel. I'm going to try to get them to see the truth out of out of love for them and the honor of God. So you forgive them internally first, and then you seek to open their eyes and maybe even reconcile. And so he would call it internal forgiveness and then external uh, relational forgiveness where you're trying to repair and that way you have on the one hand um you, you are concerned about justice because you're going to the person you want to say do you do you really see that you've done something wrong and you're trying to get the person to change for their sake uh for the sake of maybe other victims for god's sake but first you've actually forgiven them already in your heart now i think that ability to both forgive and to seek justice at the same time proves that you have really understood what happened on the cross because on the cross jesus christ um satisfied the justice of god and yet at the same time procured our mercy and grace uh, and salvation at the very same moment in a nutshell you both forgive and seek justice just as on the cross jesus christ both forgave and fulfilled justice and it's fascinating that in the world, uh, you either have the therapeutic approach to, to it, where you are just forgiving in order to help yourself, or the transactional approach, where you're really not forgiving them, but just for forcing them to grovel. Or the idea that, no, I'm, I can't forgive at all. I just have to seek justice. Right. Only the cross that brings those together. Yeah. Well let's let's continue on that theme why do you say that forgiveness is granted before it's felt at least sometimes because i can imagine that someone might say that that view is prone to abuse but i'm guessing you're trying to push back against a therapeutic self-centered motivation for forgiveness yes yes uh to say forgiveness is granted before it's felt means forgiveness is a promise uh that you can make even when you stay angry see in other words most people feel like to feel forgiving means my anger has gone away and i'm saying you can grant forgiveness before your anger goes away if you promise to do three things i put this in the book i promise not 
for example, to throw this up in the person's face. If I've forgiven them, I'm not going to, every time I see them, throw it up to them. Secondly, I'm not going to be throwing it up to other people trying to draw their, you know, trying to hurt their reputation. So I'm not going to bring it up to you. I'm not going to keep bringing it up to other people, the thing you did. And I'm not going to keep bringing it up to myself. I'm not going to be constantly thinking about it. Now, that doesn't mean I won't notice, remember it, but then I'm not going to dwell on it. And I found that if I say, for example, if if I want to forgive my wife, or if she wants to forgive me for something we just did, then we don't throw it up in the other person's face a week later or two weeks later. We certainly don't talk to other people about it. And we don't dwell on it ourselves. And if I do that, if I grant forgiveness, then eventually I find that I feel forgiving. But if you wait to feel forgiving before you grant forgiveness, you may never feel forgiveness. I've recently, uh, for another project, uh, read back through everything that you've done. And a lot of your books feel very consoling. Um, they're just straight. They're good news. This one actually struck me as maybe your most demanding book. You're really relaying some difficult teaching for especially some contemporary Western culture, um, difficult teaching from Jesus, and really there's no effort to try to explain it away at all. Um, do you think that's a fair impression of the book, or or did you have a different one? Well, I, I trust your uh, judgment there because you have read a lot of my other books. And I think you're probably right that this is a little more in your face, like you have to do this. Obviously, forgiveness sounds really nice. And way down the line, the fact that you have forgiven can bring a lot of fruit. But I do think that it's a, uh, I didn't want to sugarcoat it. I think it's it's hard work. And I, so I didn't. It just felt more explicitly countercultural without some sort of way to try to make it sound more palatable. It was, I mean, here's, here's a bracing statement from the book. Here's, uh, here's a quote. If you believe only in a God of love, you will live like a spoiled child. But if you believe only in a God of wrath, you will live like an abused child. I'm just interested to know, how have you seen that dynamic play out over the year, years among Christians? Interesting. You do know that I've always uh, adopted Luther and actually you know, reformed Protestant theology that says, that the gospel is neither legalism or antinomianism. And antinomianism is how I can live any way I want. Legalism is I'm just, I'm terrible, I'm awful, it's, it's awful. A legalist is an abused child uh, who I feel like God's going to get me, I'm, I'm never good enough. An antinomian is a spoiled child. Like I can live the way I want to because, you know, I've got, uh, you know, God is just a God of love and he's going to, take care of me no matter what, you know, that's his job. It's his job to love me and forgive me. Uh, and I I actually have seen it a lot over the years. Uh, there's a, um, it's kind of, frankly, it's the reason why I constantly get charged with being a third way person because there's legalism and antinomianism, but it's also, what is that? That's conservatism and liberalism. That's secularism and religious people. And so I've seen it played out constantly. And in fact, I would say most people when it comes to God are either 
you can look it on the internet, by the way, <laughs> is your 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 the angry right wing types uh, and the angry left wing types. The angry left wing types are abused children, and they were in the church, and they finally said, you know, I'm mad as you know what, and I'm not taking it anymore. And um, whereas the people on the inside, in many ways, uh, there's another way to look at it, by the way, Colin, and that is that the people who feel like they are living up to the standards, uh, they are not uh, spoiled children. They are like the oldest child. I'm the oldest child. Are you an oldest child? Yeah. Well, you know, oldest children get very self-righteous. They feel like we're the ones that are obeying the parents. And we look down at our younger siblings who are are, are, are playing with it. Uh, and so you either are, there are self-righteous older children, there are abused children, there are spoiled children. But I do think the gospel doesn't make you any of those. So, yeah, I've seen it played out all the time, constantly. Is it more of um, region of the country or is it more person to person? I mean, of course, one of the fundamental dynamics of your career is the contrast between Hopewell yeah. and New York. Yeah. No, it's not that simple. It's not as simple as region. No. You know, the old, the prodigal son sermon, the prodigal God book, talks about older brother and younger brother. The elder brother is the legalist. The younger brother is the antinomian. The older brother is the self-righteous or the, you know, the, uh, you know, the younger brother is the, uh, you know, is the licentious one. And you'd think that you come to New York, you have mainly younger brothers. And it's true, by the way, that there's an awful lot of uh, younger siblings who move to New York from more traditional families and the in traditional, very often the older children stayed home and were true to the parents' values and the younger children very often went off. I, I did see some of that, but it's just, it's, it's, no, it's not that simple. You can be very, you can be a self-righteous progressive, by the way. A lot of people are, and there's a lot of that in New York. Well, I remember you saying that a long time ago, and then for this other project, looking so much into new york history i remember i remember realizing well of course the the amazing thing about redeemer is that it was the massive arts community and wall street it wasn't one or the other right but i had to imagine a good number of those wall street folks were older brothers i mean they might yeah. have still been the younger ones and the older ones stayed home but i had to imagine many of them were classic climbers strivers uh, you know, one, one time we did a uh, an open forum on La Boheme, and La Boheme is talking about uh, the the we're, we're talking about the 19th century. But what you have is the bourgeois and the bohemian. The bourgeois is the person who is middle class or upper middle class and who sticks by the rules and wears a suit and goes to work, and the bohemian is the person who it's you know wine, women, and song and and uh, and art and and not fitting in and, and that's and, and what we did have i realized when i was preaching uh i, I mean i didn't pre i did a lecture at the end of the uh the open forum we had a bunch of opera singers go through and sing all the main pieces of la boheme and at the end i said the story is pretty much the same thing as the uh story of the prodigal son and the elder brother the elder brother is the bourgeois prodigal son is like the bohemian and i said in our own church we have a lot of bourgeois people who came to New York to wear that suit and to go in there and make the money. And, you know, there's not a hair out of place. And, 
Uh, and you, the rest, you know, but hundreds of you are came here to get rid of that and, and to live downtown and to live in the artistic community. And so, yeah, you see both in big cities. You see both the bourgeois and the bohemian, the elder brother and the younger brother. Even if the bourgeois are secular, there's still a kind of um, legalism. Same thing you found right in Babette's Feast and Blixen's story and Kierkegaard's yeah. dimensions. Well, that's Kierkegaard. Well. The aesthetic, the uh, I'm, I'm re- the reading ethical. some of his stuff. The aesthetic, the ethical, and then what he calls the religious, what we would call the gospel. Got a few more questions here on forgiveness specifically. Is it ever appropriate, Tim, for someone to decline when a church leader tells them they must forgive? Well, you know, it depends on... Yes, probably. It's not meant to be a gotcha question, but I mean, no, no, I think you can no, see yeah, why this why is a... Probably, you, need, you do need to, ask the, you need to ask the church leader, please spell out what you mean by forgive before you say yes. That's all. Maybe that'd be better. Uh, I was very impressed, and I spent a fair amount of time in one of the chapters with Rachel Dunn Hollander and other sex abuse activists. Uh, explaining how, especially in the 70s and 80s, from what we can tell, it's still within our living memory, as it were, an awful lot of churches uh, told women, especially, or young boys, you know, who were abused sexually, they need to forgive. Yeah, that's where the question comes from. And and if if that means what it often meant, and that is, you don't talk to anybody about this, you don't talk to the police about this, you don't bring it up again, you in your heart you let it go and say this man is really he's really sorry so you have to let it go and of course then he goes right back to being in the same position he was before because he said he was sorry if that's what it means to forgive meaning don't don't speak to anybody never bring it up again and just let the person go on that wasn't very good (laughs) that wasn't that was terrible and therefore and so you know i won't mention any names but we definitely know of friends of ours who uh, and I, because I'm older than you, Colin, I do remember the day in which I, it wouldn't surprise me because there was a time when the evangelical world felt like we're competent to counsel ourselves. We don't need secular therapists and secular, which you don't actually, you don't need secular therapists. I mean, you, there, I, I don't mean to say that, that there's a need for secular therapy when it comes to these issues. But the idea was you don't go to any kind of outside the church authorities at all, even when, frankly, a law has been broken, even when sexual abuse, you know, uh, is a crime uh, or physical abuse. Very often. Now, here's another one, of course, is that your uh, women who are being abused by their husbands were told they need to forgive their husbands and just go. And so the idea, I do remember the 60s, 70s, and 80s when evangelical churches would say, we can cover, we can handle this. We do not need to go to sexual, secular authorities. And that included that included the police. So I do remember when that, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I guess I was never tested at that point. Um, but I was fortunate that I was never put in a position where I needed to, um, I don't know what I would have done when I was a brand new Christian minister. Because uh, I was, to some degree, I think under under that that mindset that you don't need to go to secular authorities. So a lot of people did that. They said forgive, meaning don't go to the authorities when a crime has been committed, and that's wrong, totally. Wrong. Well, and I think that's part of what makes this book so 
urgent and helpful, but also potentially confusing for some people. Now, the book itself is not confusing, but the topic is why you're writing on it. Um, we know that forgiveness has been often weaponized by church leaders as a way of silencing critics, as a way of of um, sentencing victims back to their abusers, and it's um and it seems to me one of the more heinous abuses of the gospel that there is that we could be said okay forgiveness means and, and I don't know I don't know Tim if it was always was it naivete or was it actual further abuse of authority of somebody saying hey your husband's been sexually abusing your children but he seems really sad about it now you wouldn't want to take your husband and father away from his kids so just forgive him and let's assume this is going to be you know okay going forward because he's really he really feels really bad about this i don't know if it was naivete or if it you know because they didn't understand the dynamics of sexual abuse or if it was an effort to try to cover up i don't know i can't put myself yes, in that situation I, and you're right no 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 i mean i uh it would have been both because on the one hand it definitely was a naivete about about how sin works and about how sexual abuse works and the idea that a person could just repent. I mean, back in those days, for example, I think they realized that if a person was an alcoholic, they couldn't just repent and say, I'm sorry, okay. I'm going to change and not need extensive help and not be in a position of addiction where they really had lost the ability to exercise their own volition. I think uh, in the 60s and 70s, that was understood when it came to drugs and alcohol but not yet sex, I don't think. In spite of the fact that sex is a physical thing, you know, the sexual arousal and all that is, it's a physical thing. And they, uh, so I think that was part of it, but I absolutely, I must say that that's naive. And that was, uh, you might say that's a little bit more excusable, but it's not, there, there definitely was a desire just to sweep things under the rug and not deal with the, uh, the reputation. And, and, and also a hope that, Maybe in some cases there could be restoration or the family could stay together. I'm sure there was some aspect of that too. But it's interesting that you contrast it with alcohol because that was widely recognized as a huge problem for the same reasons by the mid to late 19th century. So that was just at the forefront of evangelical and even broader Protestant um, ethics for a, I mean, that's of course the origins of prohibition, but it was a lot of the same dynamics. Husband's drunk, comes home, beats wife, apologizes when he's sobered up in the morning. Oh, he feels really bad about it. You know, no big deal. And then of course it just keeps repeating. So maybe, I, I don't know why there wasn't a recognition of some of the other dynamics, but you're right. There was about a hundred year head start of recognizing the problems in those dynamics with alcohol. Abuse. Well, I have to and say, though, abuse. that alcoholism was n was not as big a alcoholism was not as shameful as this. Okay. Alcoholism was bad. Okay. But but this was uh, this is the reason why this one they wanted to sweep this under the rug. I'm sure. I see. Okay. I'm sure of that. So when you say what percentage, I don't know. Uh, I don't think we should hide behind the night. There was definitely a naivete. No doubt about it. I. I I, I experienced some of it. It took me a while to realize just how, you know, just with like pornography, for example, and when we, you know, auto eroticism, 
as a as a counselor, as a pastoral counselor, you deal with men who have a pornography habit. And certainly when I was in my 20s and 30s, I was kind of naive about how easy it was to for them to stop. Again, wow. It, you know, they seem to be really repentant, really sorrowful. I don't think they're kidding me. They weren't lying to me, yet they just can't seem to stop. So, I mean, I, it, I, it, it slowly dawned on me as I got older that this is something that is both uh they are responsible for it it's still wrong and yet at the same time they're they've given away their ability to get c- control i think there's some place where lewis says that when you get to the place where you are drunk you no longer have control and yet it's not uh you're not innocent because in a way you gave away that control bit by bit by bit and you knew what you were doing but by the end you couldn't do anything about it and that's what's the same thing that happens with with uh uh addiction is in the beginning you do it and you are responsible for it but it, then when it eventually you are no longer able to stop it it's just going on and then you need a whole lot more ma- massive intervention and then you got to remember the victim the other point is i think the other thing where people were naive about it was the idea that um victims could forgive and not be traumatized by it that it, that it would yeah that it would go away that it wouldn't linger yeah the, the, the victim would be yeah. forgiven, forget. Yeah. And that was, that was also tremendous naivete. Right. Two more questions here on forgive. Why should I and how can I? Latest book from Tim Keller. Um, I'm going to summarize one of your observations, Tim, of the spiritual but not religious um, category of folks, big group in uh, Western society this way. You, you, you say that they want forgiveness for me but punishment for thee. <laughs> I was wondering why this contradiction isn't more obvious something in our culture human nature because it seems transparent that forgiveness can't work that we always expect other people to forgive us but not have to forgive back or expect others to be forgiven if there are enemies not everybody's like that i mean actually one time i was counseling a couple and the wife had had an affair and uh with another man and the husband was surprisingly forgiving i thought until it came out that he'd actually had an affair that he hadn't told us about uh earlier and one of the reasons why he was so forgiving was because he, he knew himself he, he right? knew he knew he was going to need to play that card right now yeah. i think that frankly it, as bad as that was i think he's a little he was more reasonable i mean in other words he he, he, the, he the fact that he knew he was a, had sinned himself humbled him. Yeah. So okay. that he was able to forgive his wife. When she found out about it, you know, for a moment, of course, she flared up and then she said, All right, well, what you know, how can I be? How can I get on my high horse? It was pretty interesting. Wow. Okay. Uh, on the other hand, there are people, what I'm trying to say there is there definitely are people who um they will be all after other people if they've sinned and yet as soon as they do something wrong they just want forgiveness and i think those are people that are really out of touch with moral reality and the human heart but i do see a lot of that and i think those people are you know they are far from the kingdom (laughs) put it that way uh last question on the on the book you know it's interesting tim i didn't sense much of your personal experience with this subject um in the book it's you know, it's a very personal topic, but it must have been a conscious choice on your part uh, to not use much personal narrative in it. 
Um, and you use personal narrative in a number of your books. Not as much as some people. I'm also interviewing uh, Scott Sauls this season. Scott has a very different, uh, different writing style, much more personal style. But would you describe yourself as quick to forgive? How do you see yourself in this? I'm a peacemaker because I'm an oldest child, and maybe that's not the only reason. Uh, but uh, I am a little too, I would say, if I'm a little too quick to forgive and then not confront. Uh, okay. Uh, others are too quick to confront and not really forgive. Remember, that's David Pallison said you're supposed to both forgive and then confront out of that forgiveness so that you're now no longer going after them and confronting them for vengeance, but for just for their sake. Uh, if you don't forgive, you're going to confront them for your sake. If you do forgive, then you can confront them for the Lord's sake and their sake. That's the idea. And I uh, would say that that whereas I have not had a problem in forgiveness, uh, forgiving other people who wronged me, that hasn't been a big issue. The, my bigger problem has been more on the going to people and saying, you know, you did something wrong. Somehow, I don't know that that, I guess it could. I probably had a couple places where I could have stuck that in there. It would. It would have been easier if I had a good narrative about saying this is something that was done to me, and this is how I was so angry, and this is how I got out of it. That's a much more compelling story than to say I ordinarily tend to chicken out when people wrong me and not tell them about it. And I don't know. That just didn't, Colin. It just. It didn't feel like that was all that helpful. Now you know. You might say, well, you're. You know, or you're also covering up your sin. That's true, maybe, perhaps. But I also, that's the, uh, I could have said that, and maybe I should have. And now I have. You got me <laughs> to say it on this podcast. That that's my, I, I'm, that, uh, of the, what the Bible says about forgiveness, that's the part that I have a tendency not to do. And I think most of us, it's one or the other is a problem. Well, I, again, having, having studied through, studied through your life, um, I, I assume that that was, that was how you would answer that you do tend to be by nature and by grace more quick to forgive i hadn't thought about the confrontational dimension but i also was not aware of any kind of now you mentioned rachel denhollander in here i was not familiar with some sort of rachel denhollander kind of situation that you could have used to illustrate um and it's probably more similar to i mean you have especially more recently in life you're walking with god through pain and suffering book of course you bring in all the other narratives in there to be able to to advance those arguments and you have a little bit more of that acquaintance with that um those aspects of grief but yeah um, i mean i had cancer twice right and uh on the other hand that's uh you know that's i would still still see that as garden variety human suffering but it's hard yeah so i've had i've had my experiences there but when it comes to forgiveness it's more of a uh I tried to put in there the kind of uh, incentives for talking to people and not just letting it go. But don't forget this too, Colin, right now, the culture is going in the direction of let's confront. Oh, just confront, but not forgive. Yeah. And not forgive. You're and therefore I wasn't, I wasn't really speaking so much in this book to an audience I felt that was afraid of confronting <laughs> um, the, uh, you know, younger people are, are much, much, you know, they're willing to, to lodge their complaints and go after people and uh, in a way that just wasn't true, you know, years ago where you just didn't make waves. You know, that's the that's the the way it was. 
and I, I've, I've noticed also in your writing that it's it's very perspectival, um, and there's a strong situational dimension to this. Um, so, I mean, you just I was just thinking about how um, you handle the different dimensions so well, but there's a strong sense of writing for this moment. It's still timeless in its biblical and pastoral wisdom, but it's also very much at a moment, which your introduction covers, where there's a lot of confrontation, thank you to social media and other uh, venues for that. But um, anyway, well, we've been talking with Tim Keller about his new book, Forgive, Why Should I and How Can I? One last question off the script, Tim. Uh, what's the last great book you've read? I'm reading a book right now that's almost done by uh, a, a couple that looks like they're married to each other, and they both teach it at Furman. It's okay. the stories. Okay. Um, and I've forgotten their first names, but it's called Why Why We Are Restless. Okay. It's a Princeton University book. It's a unit, you know, so it's an academic press, but it's really accessible. And it's looking at four um, French thinkers. It's really looking at uh, Montaigne, Pascal, Rousseau, and whoops, what was the fourth one? It was uh, It's just, I'm only halfway through the book. <laughs> I haven't gotten to him yet. Book. No, wait a minute, wait a minute. And, uh, well, there we are. Anyway, last great book, and he doesn't remember. Uh, <laughs> actually, halfway I'm through. halfway through it, and we, we, it's the very, very, very most recent book. It's a book by two people that feel to me like they might be Catholic uh, Christians. I'm not sure who the authors are. However, it's a really good book on what they call philosophical anthropology. You know, what what are human beings uh, for, and uh, what satisfies us? So it's a it's a book on how do you find contentment and happiness for a secular audience? Just a really, really good book. Why We Are Restless. So take a look at it. I think it, it's also, believe it or not, a pretty fast read. There you go. Another recommendation on top. Check out Tim Keller's new book, Forgive, Why Should I and How Can I? Thanks, Tim. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound. For more interviews and to sign up for my newsletter, Head over to tgc.org slash gospelbound. Rate and review Gospelbound on your favorite podcast platform so others can join the conversation. Until next time, remember, when we're bound to the gospel, we abound in hope. Thank you.